You've found the Digging Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you've been listening to and enjoying our podcast, please help out the show by becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. For today's podcast, we have another terrific interview. Uh, and this one is our second, I think, interview with who I consider a friend now, a friend of the show, Corey and Maul, uh, who really came through towards the end of this season uh, on The Curse of Oak Island. I think really saved the season, made the intrigue of the season even more than it was, uh, you know, much more than it was before he entered the fray here and started uh, (laughs) piquing all of our interest again in the Templars and some of the stuff we see over there. So we're going to talk really with him all about um, his experiences in this past season, the stuff we didn't get to see, and maybe some more information on the stuff that we did. Really exciting stuff. So before we get to that, I want to get um, get through all of the, uh, the the shameless plugs here before we begin, and then we'll just play this out, and that'll be the end of the show. Um, first, I just want to remind everybody, you can come uh, join us on Facebook and Twitter. Just go to your search bar, write in at Diggin' Oak Island. If you have any questions or comments, especially about this interview or the last interview we did with Laird Niven, uh, p- please feel free to send them to me, diggingoakisland at gmail.com. That's the best way to get to me through that email. Um, remember that I'll probably answer these questions or comments that you have on a future podcast. If you don't want them read aloud, uh, just please make a note of that and I'll do my best to return it to you. You can also send messages via Twitter and Facebook. Um, don't forget, you can always help out the show by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and they give you a chance to do reviews. That helps get the word out on the show. Uh, so uh, let's uh, let's let's do that if you're enjoying the show. That really helps. And if you want to help us out even more, uh, then you can consider, like I said at the top, becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash island. If you think the show is worth five bucks a month to you, then that's the best way to donate to the show to help keep us going and help uh, keep all this uh, (laughs) Oak Island content coming. I'm really going to spend this summer uh, focusing on the Patreon and the patrons as much as I possibly can. You guys who have supported the show all this time deserve nothing less. So I'm going to spend a lot of time doing that and be adding some extra content this summer. And speaking of summer, after this podcast today, I'm going to take a break. I'm doing some traveling. Uh, I'm going to be up in the up in Maine and doing some stuff down in the Caribbean. So I'm going to be doing some traveling for the next three weeks or so. So it's going to be at least until the end of July before we get another podcast up here. Um, so if you have any, like I said, if you have any comments or anything like that, just uh, just send them along via email or uh, even better yet through the Patreon. And uh, that will be, <laughs> it'd be great to hear from you during this little break that we're going to take and then come back, do some, um, you know, of our normal summer stuff, going to do some history, may even do a rewatch of uh, maybe season one or something like that. I've got a lot of plans that I'm kind of kicking around. If you have any ideas on that, just uh, email them along. All right. I want to thank Corey and Maul once again for his incredible generosity with his time and with his information. Um, I call him on here the savior of season nine. I really do believe that. I think the season was getting tough to watch until the guys went over to Portugal and Corian stepped in and um, 
I think he's going to be a bigger part of the show this season, too. At least that's what it sounds like in the interview here. Uh, so without further ado, we're going to hear some seagulls, and we're going to come back with Corey and Maul on the Diggin' Oak Island podcast. And joining me now, in my opinion, the man who saved season nine of The Curse of Oak Island is uh, researcher Corian Wall. And Corian, you have joined us before, so we're not going to talk as much about some of your background and stuff. People can go and listen to that um, uh, podcast that we did where we talked about how you got interested in all this kind of stuff. What we want to do now is talk about what we saw last season and maybe even more so what we didn't see last season. And that leads me to my opening question was, when the last time you and I talked, we talked about the research you were doing with Chris Morford, I think it was with Chris Morford, about a line that seemed to be connecting unbelievably between the the uh, Nolan's Cross to the Palace at Versailles all the way to the Temple Mount. And then we never got any follow-up on that this year. I have a... a find it very hard to believe that you guys weren't continuing that research, uh, continuing down that line. So can you tell us anything about that, um, that we haven't seen, what we might see? What is there any progress on that? Okay, D- that's a lot of questions. Um, <laughs> well, uh, I can go uh, back and ask them one by one if that helps. <laughs> no, 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 not at all, not at all. No, no, th- thanks for uh, introducing me. Um, uh, saving this show, that's, uh, that's some big shoes to fill. So I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, we'll get into that in a minute. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, but Hey, thanks. And always a pleasure to be back. Uh, big fan of your podcast. Um, yeah. So Chris and I are still working together. So, uh, uh Moller Morford, uh, are still a team. Uh, we talk to each other daily. We work together daily. And uh, um, uh, we have a, a big project uh, running, which is uh, coming to completion uh, after the summer, uh, which will be uh, a vehicle for us to, uh, let's say, publish uh, our wider research in all the, you know, delightful detail that Great. you, you know, c- can never put into a, a television show, uh, which is cool. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in terms of... Uh, research uh, Chris uh, uh, is still my best friend in the world uh, and we uh, both of us are still in touch also uh, uh, with the people on the island um, yes of course we did continue our research uh, into the alignments uh, controversial as it is uh, but also undeniable uh, as it is you know uh, uh, most of it you can just uh, go check for yourself on Google Earth and you you can disagree uh, with the theory behind it but not uh, with the facts that you see in front of you um, one thing that uh, that we have presented to the island is that um, alignment between Versailles, eh, Louis XIV's palace, and Nolan's Cross uh, uh, is in fact uh, very good, be it that it's not the central axis, but uh, a point just off, but it is on the domain. Um, that wasn't aired. Uh, but in the process, uh, we did find something else. Um, um, one of the facts being that... Uh, and this is something um, I really invite all your viewers uh, to do this for themselves. Go to Google Earth um, and then uh, find the Convento Cristo, the Convent of Christ in Tomar, Portugal. Put a dot in the middle uh, of the Carola, the rotunda, you know, the round church, the octagonal church uh, on the property and draw the line to Versailles. 
and you will see that it aligns uh, rather perfectly uh, with one of the uh, of the garden. Um, it, it's actually one of the rays emitting from the central candle uh, of the pass. Um, so during our research, uh, we, um, we always thought that um, you know Versailles had something to do with the menorah. You know, the garden being a giant version of a seven-armed right. menorah. And uh, we started to discover that um, um, the menorah in Versailles points to something like, you know, 20 places uh, from the Crusades. And one of those is uh, the Convent of Christ in Portugal. So what was Louis's interest here? Like, do, do you have an idea of what you think he was... And was it him? Was he the one directing this architectural layout or was there somebody kind of behind the scenes that may have had a motive behind? What was his motive behind doing this? I know we talked about this before, but I just want to I just want to to just remind people of that and what 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 the theory is behind that. This this was him. Uh, The central axis of Versailles, so the the big central path that points to um, uh, Jerusalem in the east and Nova Scotia in the west um, was laid out by his dad, Louis XIII. Um, but the let's say the, the details of the menorah, so all the garden paths and uh, the alignments of the other locations uh, were, were done by Louis XIV, who was fully in charge of the operation. Of course, he had help. He had this famous gardener under Notre, and he had mathematicians, astrologers, astronomers. Uh, uh, who helped him, but he was very much uh, the driving force uh, uh, behind this all. So we're thinking Louis was aware of Oak Island's, well, how do I put it, role in the Crusades. Yes. That's kind of how the theory went. Because if we're, if we're, we're, yeah, absolutely. To, yeah. if we're following the theory, right, the theory is the, 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 um, the Knights Templar went, recovered these artifacts, and then at some point, left them in uh, Nova Scotia. That's the theory, right? So where our theory includes that Louis and his father, both Louis, knew of this and probably well, there were there were more Louis that knew of this. And you know, the, the famous right. joker named uh, name 12 uh, kings of France, uh, they're all called Louis. Right. Um, so, yes, we, uh, we are um, convinced that the Knights Templar um, found something in Jerusalem um, that found its way into France and later uh, uh, to North America. So at some stage deposited on Ogli- on Ireland, at some stage uh, retrieved and maybe redeposited. And I don't want to go in all the, into all the details. Oh, uh, now but, you're just teasing but, us. But this, but this, but this <laughs> is, you know, um, uh, from our perspective, something which was known by, let's say, the Royal House of France. Okay. And which was passed on as a as a secret or as knowledge. No, to them it wasn't a secret. Uh, as knowledge, uh, you know, from uh, from one king uh, uh, to the next. And uh, uh, Louis the Fourteenth uh, um, recorded this in a uh, slightly bigger way than his predecessors. Without trying to give you, without trying to give away too much, because like you said, you're still working on this, and and I want to give you the opportunity to. Uh, publish this information and publish this theory on your own in, in the terms you want. Do you think this stuff still exists somewhere? Do you think, Oh yes. Yeah. You think the, 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 um, 
whatever it might be, the menorah, or, or I forget what actually it would be that was under there, all the different details of it, but that they would have recovered in Jerusalem. Um, you think that still exists somewhere in this world? Yes. Okay. All right. This I'm is a real treasure hunt. It's a real yeah. treasure. It's a real hunt. All right. Uh, but it might not be on Oak Island, it seems, is what you're, is what you're uh, <laughs> theorizing here. But listen, if we can get a clue that it was there at some point, boy, that's part of the hunt, isn't it? Uh, for, for sure. Um, okay. Before I mentioned you're the person who saved uh, the Curse of Oak Island for season nine. And I say that, and everybody knows exactly why who's listening, because once we got went to Portugal... That's when things picked up and everybody's interest came back and everybody was, you know, back all in on this. And I was getting emails left and right. You got to ask Corey in this. You got to ask him that. A hundred and one different questions I had, um, most of which you answered for me anyway. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about Portugal and this. Now, the first sure. question I have for you is, was this kind of years in the making and just wasn't able to happen because of COVID? Or is this something that came up just this year? This came up just this year. Okay. Um, so in that sense, it was uh, rather spontaneous. And I think it's uh, a good example of, of, you know, of, of the Curse of Oak Island being the reality show that it is, where they basically follow uh, what's happening. So it was um, and this year and that they started to concentrate more on the, on the road in the swamp. Uh, Terry DeVoe came by and, uh, and mentioned uh, uh, the possible... Uh, Portuguese origins, um, uh, a little bit more interest um, for uh, people like uh, João Fagundas, who allegedly uh, visited uh, uh, Nova Scotia in the 1520s. Okay, you're, um, you're going to have to stop and explain that one. <laughs> ah, okay. Um, well, there, there's um, a general consensus that uh, that there were Portuguese in uh, in Nova Scotia in the 16th century. Um, so, um, there was, uh, a Labrador, uh, and there was Fagundes, um, who, uh, for sure, uh, was on Cape Breton, um, uh, and, and probably also, uh, mainland, uh, Nova Scotia. Um, you know, these were fishing grounds, uh, for the Portuguese. Um, and, uh, there's also, uh, contracts, uh, uh, known from certain families who had possessions, uh, uh, in fact, uh, you know, in Mahone Bay. Um, so, um, that wasn't a secret, um, uh, uh, many people, uh, knew this and, and, uh, many before us had uh, brought this up, uh, only this year, you know, the connections were made, uh, um, with the road. And then, uh, when the, uh, the stone shot, uh, was found and someone argued you know, that, you know, the, um, the, the stone material, uh, that these little, uh, little stone balls were made from. Uh, could possibly have come from from the Azores. You know, that's when everything started to uh, to click in place. Okay. Um, and then at the same time, um, I was doing my uh, uh, my research. I was on the island uh, last summer uh, doing research, and I found references uh, to Portugal on a French map. Um, and this wasn't aired, but uh, we did a war room uh, about this. And um, you know, in the end, that's that's how I found uh, you know Fonte Arcada, uh, because uh, you know I found the connections uh, uh, to its location uh, on uh, on a French map from the 17th century. Okay, so explain since that didn't air, and it's something that from last year. Explain to us what that is, what that map is, if you can. 
Um, well, it, it's a 17th century uh, French map. Um, uh, can't tell you exactly uh, which one or what, but um, this is the time of uh, of the early French uh, explorers, so uh, uh, Champlain uh, uh, era, um, okay. that uh, had, uh, in my perspective, uh, uh, certain clues uh, that led to uh, to Portugal. Um, one of the clearest one I thought is that um, on one of the maps there's a a sea creature, um, you know, which which hadn't been explained by anyone uh, uh, before, and I recognize that uh, as a, a, a uh, this is actually a type of jellyfish, which uh, which was named uh, in the uh, the 16th 17th century, uh, and and still has the same name today. It's called a Portuguese man o' war. <laughs> Um, so in, in uh, the Dutch translation, we call this a Portuguese warship. Right. Um, so I had already found um, uh, connections uh, to Portugal uh, on the map and to Fonte Arcada. And then, uh, you know, to, to top everything off, uh, there was also, you know, this, uh, this Portuguese manoir. And um, uh, that was the, the moment uh, I thought, you know, maybe it's a good idea to have a look in Portugal. Okay. So the guys decide they're coming. Right. Um, and then you're sort of the point man in Portugal for this. How did you decide? I mean, I think you told us a little bit right there, but how did you decide the sites to take them to? And were there sites that were filmed that we didn't see that you also took them to? We went to a number of locations. Uh, we started in the north, uh, Fonte Arcada, um, close to Braga. Very interesting story because there's actually two Fonte Arcadas in, uh, uh, in Portugal. And I think... Uh, uh, we've uh, uh, proven that uh, that R between brackets Fonte Arcada is the real Fonte Arcada, not the other one. Um, then we uh, went to Tomar at on the Convent of Christ, as you've seen. Uh, we went to the museum in uh, in Lisbon, and then to Sintra. Uh, we also filmed in the Maritime uh, uh, Museum uh, in Lisbon, uh, but that wasn't aired. Um, and I think that's uh, for the rest. I think you've seen pretty much uh, most of it. Um, I, I think before we kind of get into it, I've explained this a few times on the, on the podcast, but I think maybe for to have an expert do it would would be helpful too. Um, explain just besides the road, Portugal and its role in Templar history and all of this. Just just it, quickly, like the nickel version of why we think Portugal, if we deposited treasure of the Templars on Oak Island. What the the role Portugal played in all that? Uh, again, I've explained it a bunch of times, but before we go on, I think it, it helps to kind of set the scene for everybody here. Um, Portugal played a big part, um, first of all, in in the infancy uh, of the Knights Templar. So only a few years after uh, the Knights Templar were founded uh, in Jerusalem. Um, uh, Queen Teresa uh, donated lands uh, to the Knights Templar in Portugal already in 1126, which is absolutely remarkable because um, Knights Templar officially didn't come into existence until uh, 1129 during the, uh, the Council of Troyes uh, in France. Right. So at that time, you know, officially there were only uh, 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 nine knights, uh, even though, uh, uh, yeah, oh, th there were nine knights because I think uh, Hugo of Penn didn't leave the Holy Land until 1128 to do his tour where he visited uh, France and Scotland uh, and everything. So 
So again, let that sink in. Three years before they're actually acknowledged by, by the world, they already get lands in Portugal, in Fonte Arcada. And from that moment on, um, you know, the, the Knights Templars start to play a big role in uh, the Reconquista. So, you know, the, um, uh, uh, basically driving out the Moors from the uh, Iberian Peninsula right. and making Portugal from a county in, into a country. Um, uh, there's a big role for Gualdin Pais, who was a Grand Master. He's actually the guy who built the Convent of Christ uh, in Tomar. Um, it's very interesting uh, and and beautifully deep history and deep ties between what became the Royal House of Portugal and the Knights Templar. Uh, at some stage, the Knights Templar owned a third of Portugal. Um, uh, lands that had been given uh, to them out of pure gratitude, but also out of pure necessity, because they were the military force uh, which kept uh, the Portuguese kings in the saddle. Which means that in 1307, when Philip IV in France decided you know, to turn against the Templars and, uh, and arrest them, um, uh, the Portuguese king uh, you know, couldn't follow. He didn't agree and couldn't follow. Um, so in the end, when the Pope um, extended the, um, uh, uh, the arrest warrants uh, from France to the rest of Europe, um, uh, uh, King Dinis uh, um, uh, came up with, let's say, a workaround. So um, the Knights Templar were indeed uh, dissolved, uh, and he sort of kept their uh, properties uh, for a short while uh, until he had uh, um, uh, founded the Knights of Christ, who were then given all the possessions of the Knights Templar, which was basically just, you know, the rebranded uh, Knights Templar. Same people, same places, uh, but under a new, uh, you know, re-legalized uh, umbrella uh, in a new structure. And this um, Order of Christ, and this is where we get to uh, the link to North America, uh, became material in, in what we know as the Portuguese Age of Discovery. So, um, the, first of all, um, the Royal House of Portugal and the Knights Templar were intertwined to a very, very large extent. So, so one difference between the setup of the Knights Templar and the setup of the uh, Order of Christ is that, uh, in case of the Order of Christ, the Portuguese king was allowed uh, to indicate, uh, to nominate uh, the Grand Master. Uh, where, whereas in the old situation, the original Knights Templar, you know, the, the Grand Master came from the ranks and was basically chosen by, by his peers. Uh, in Portugal, uh, not so much. The Portuguese king had the right to nominate uh, the Grand Master and, in fact, uh, uh, you know, at some stage nominated himself uh, as Grand Master. Um, the knowledge of the Knights Templar, um, the money of the Knights Templar, the instruments, their Technology and their skill was used um, to um, uh, uh, to fuel the age of discovery. So um, when they needed a new type of ship, they used the relations uh, there were um, to to look in Flanders, to look in the Netherlands, and to develop, to develop uh, this Portuguese uh, caravel uh, in Sagres in Portugal on on the edge of what is Western Europe. Beautiful, beautiful spot. Um, and these caravels, uh, uh, which could almost sail against the wind, were very fast, very small, 
um, uh, uh, they use those to to unveil to unveil the world around them. You know, to 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 do away with the fog on the map and discover the places that were there. Um, which is really cool. I mean, if in discussions about Oak Island, people uh, talk about there's a galleon in the swamp, must have been a huge ship uh, to, to have been able to, to cross the ocean. Uh, but that isn't the case at all. A Portuguese caravel was, um, you know, 20 to 30 meters uh, uh, with uh, maybe a crew of between 20 and 40. Um, and, and these people routinely sailed the oceans yeah? and they, were, they weren't scared to go on a boat uh, that's one of the questions I asked uh, uh, to the experts in in Portugal. You know what? What? How would how would these Portuguese have felt about stepping on a boat and then you know being on the ocean for six weeks? And they, well, the answer is you know they they would have thought little of it. You know, for them to a certain extent, it was safer to be on a boat with people that they knew in a, right. a predefined and sort of safe command structure uh, than to to be at home and to know that you know if you walk out of the town gates uh, someone could stab you uh, to death uh, to get your wallet right uh, it was safer on on the sea than it was on land um, so from the uh, 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 like uh, 15th 16th century um, the Portuguese start to venture out across the world discover Brazil uh, uh, Magellan uh, does his first trip. Round uh, uh, round the globe. Well, Magellan dies, uh, uh, but his uh, some of his crew uh, comes back uh, uh, with his ship. All of the the point is, all of these people, Cortal, Magellan, um, uh, Tristan da Cunha, all all of these were active members of the Order of Christ, without any exception. So they all sailed on yeah. their caravels with these white sails and these red crosses, and you know, to, to, uh, um, to that that is the. Ex- extent to which you know the 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 age of discovery and and the order of christ are intertwined and the order of christ again they were basically uh the succession of the knights templar um at some stage um they uh discovered the azores and uh, not much later you know they arrived in north america um where they um uh, left uh, uh, traces uh, in nova scotia um, uh, there was a, uh, uh, a Portuguese gun found in the harbor of, uh, of Louisbourg, and it's well known that uh, João Fagundes uh, uh, was in, uh, in Cape Breton, so it's not too difficult uh, to make the connection there. Um, there's the Overton Stone, uh, which, be, which is said to, to be of Portuguese uh, uh, origin. Uh, and of course, you know, I, I think uh, Terry DeVoe, who's a an incredibly nice guy and uh, a very knowledgeable uh, uh, man uh, who has a uh, plays a big part in uh, in uh, antiquities uh, research in Nova Scotia um, has plenty of arguments uh, you know why it's it's a a logical uh, thought uh, you know to think that that Portuguese had a presence in Nova Scotia at some stage I mean uh, they didn't stay there but they were certainly there one of the things I talk about all the time is is we we tie you know a lot of theorists and a lot of uh, television likes to tie the Knights Templar to various organizations, some of which still exist today. And I always talk about how those ties are tangential at best, but not with this group, with the Order of Christ. This isn't a tangential connection at all. This is this is the Knights Templar just under a different uh, with a different badge. Yeah. I mean, it seems to be all yeah. it is. 
Yeah, and historically, this is uh, you know completely undisputed. This is fact. Um, um, do we know for sure they were in Mahon Bay? Um, no, there wasn't a camera there when uh, when right. they uh, uh, might have arrived. Uh, at the same time, and th- this is where it becomes a theory, I guess, uh, Mahon Bay was an easy place to find. At the entrance of uh, Mahon Bay, I'm, I'm probably probably killing the pronunciation here, but you have Aspatogan Hill, uh, which is the highest point on the uh, Nova Scotian Atlantic coast. You can see that from miles away. If you look at 17th, 18th centuries uh, uh, maps, it's literally indicated. Uh, John Mondor is one example of a cartographer who put this on his map. Aspatogan Hill, which is visible from a great distance. Um, so why Mahone Bay? Well, because it was the easiest place to find on all of the coast uh, of uh, of Nova Scotia. Um, and then, you know, if you then add everything up, uh, it's, it's a logical place to land. It's a safe harbor. It's a safe bay. Um, sheltered from uh, uh, from the ocean and uh, uh, from the weather influences there, behind uh, you know the biggest hill uh, uh, on the Atlantic coast of Nova Scotia. Okay, so the guys come over. <laughs> all right, we 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 see a couple of these sites, and I just have a couple of questions about the sites. Yeah, um, go on. the symbology. In, and I asked you this off air once a couple of weeks ago, the symbology found on the stones that were used to make, I believe, the uh, the first site you went to. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the, the name is escaping me now, and I probably would uh, butcher the pronunciation anyway. But, but, we, <laughs> but we saw these stones. Explain to us the symbology on these stones, why there are so many of these symbols because it seemed to be everyone they pointed at had something on it. And these seem to be just construction stones, like just stones used to make the wall to hold up the church, you know, not, yes. not really placed there for any sort of uh, reason to be worshipped or anything like that. They weren't, you know, they weren't decorative, it seemed to me. They were more something else. Can you explain that? Because that, that played a huge role in what we were looking at here. Yes, uh, Fonte Arcadia is the uh, the name of the place, Fountain of Arcadia. What's in the name? Um, from my point of view, the earliest Templar commandery in uh, in Portugal, possibly in Europe. Uh, incredibly special place. Uh, as I said, there's two Fonte Arcadas in uh, in Portugal. Both claim to be this place, um, but uh, I think we we can conclusively say that the one that you've seen on the show is the real deal. And one uh, one thing that they didn't uh, air, but which I think was one of the highlights of the whole tour, is um, I, was, I was going around the church looking for for, for Templar crosses and symbols when uh, you know in the uh, tucked away in the uh, in the alley um, between the church and the and the cemetery, uh, I found a repurposed. Uh, tombstone um, with a Knights Templar cross. At first, I thought it was a sword, so you know we cleaned it up a little bit, and then uh, uh, it was a. It's, it's actually an abacus. So an abacus is a a staff with a uh, a round uh, uh, metal object or a round stone at the top, which has a the round cross inscribed like a Templar. And this was a a staff used 
by some of the grand masters. So we think that we found a tombstone of a very early Portuguese grandmaster, uh, which was taken out of the church during renovation and then repurposed uh, to be used in the wall of the sacristy when they renovated the church in the in the 18th or the 19th century. So we, that was a very exciting find, and it for me personally uh, this um, this this nails um, this place firmly um, in uh, you know in the hands of the Templars. Apart from you know the the big Templar cross uh, over the East Gate uh, that we've seen uh, on the show and various other Templar crosses, uh, which are, you know, sort of uh, dotted around the property. The stones, when you, when you, when you enter, uh, Rick's remark there is, is absolutely right. It's almost more like, like, you know, I think especially what Americans uh, think a castle looks like. Right. Uh, it's more, more like a castle than a church, but it's this fantastic, you know, solemn space very serene, uh, very sober. You know, not the 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 the, the you know uh, ex- exuberant, gaudy um, uh, decorations you would see in a medieval cathedral like in Chartres or in Amiens. Um, this is a very um, toned down space, um, and yes, um, it's littered with uh, with symbols on all the stones. These are masons' marks. Uh, masons marks uh, were used to identify, you know, which stones had been made by what masons, and I, uh, I think that was uh, used, um, uh, for example, to determine how much you would get paid, because we could see how many stones would you contribute uh, to these walls, because it was all handwork and it would take a very long time. Um, right. But uh, I do agree that. Uh, uh, some of the symbols, uh, you know, were uh, next to identical to the symbols on uh, what I've seen of what is the alleged copy uh, of, of the 90-foot stone. Um, so, you know, Mason's marks could have been used as, uh, you know, substitute symbols or something like that. Right. Um, no way on earth to, to prove any of that. Right. But it, it is, it, they are, all these symbols were a bit reminiscent, uh, reminiscent on, on what you see uh, on the 90-foot stone. So are are these masons actually like members of the order of Christ or are they guys that they hire out? I mean, are they did they do all this work themselves meaning are to use the word templars, knights or something. When they built these things, were these actual knights that were building this stuff or were these were these members of that organization or were they or were these makers marks from people who were masons that lived in town you know or something along those lines basically the question is how much of this was really sort of insular kept inside everything was built and and designed by these groups and done by them you know what i mean i do yeah it's, it's impossible to say. I okay. mean, the, the, temp, the Templars uh, did employ their own masons, so they had layman members, you know, who, uh, who right. would not be fighters. Uh, so, you know, uh, a Templar knight uh, without the knight. Um, but um, it's 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 impossible. It's impossible uh, uh, to say. So, might might be, uh, might not be. Um, but they definitely worked for the Templars. But that doesn't mean that they had to be Templars themselves. So then, from there. Um, later on, you took them to what is literally one of the most gaudy mansions, I think, in all of the world, <laughs> a, a place where somebody with a lot of money um, 
really made himself a, uh, a, 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 a I don't even know what you would call it a a, a a world heritage site on his own or something. Uh, and you know what I'm talking about here. Yeah. Again, yeah, yeah. another pronunciation I'm going to destroy. So I'm going to let you explain a little bit more about what this place is, who this guy was that built it. It's not built by Templar era. It was built much later than that. So, and I think they kind of glossed right over that. So explain the thread here and why this was an important place for us to see. Yeah. So this, this, let's say, let's call it a Masonic Neverland or Masonic (laughs) Disneyland. Yes. Yes. Um, is is in the town of Sintra, uh, which is like half an hour north of um, of, of uh, uh, Lisbon. Um, absolutely amazing place. Uh, Sintra is one of the most beautiful towns uh, in Portugal, and uh, Quinta de Regalera, uh, which is the uh, the domain we're talking about, uh, uh, is definitely one of its uh, uh, its jewels. I think it's one of the uh, most visited uh, tourist attractions in Portugal. Uh, and it's absolutely gorgeous. It's not old. It's all built uh, in the, uh, I think, uh, end of the 19th, uh, early, t- no, I think even early 20th century. So something around uh, 1910. Um, it was built by uh, 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 a guy with a very long name that we can abbreviate to, uh, Montero. Um uh, I think he, uh, he um, that was he the part from, I didn't uh, want to try to get into. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think, I think he came from uh, uh, from uh, uh, Brazil or made his money in Brazil. He was a businessman, um, uh, connected uh, uh, to people, uh, and and also himself. I think you know had uh, the free uh, the Freemason ideals, um, and uh, and and uh, invested. Uh, how do I put this? He invested his money in a uh, substantiated version uh, of the legacy. The lands on which Quinta de Regalera sits uh, used to be Templar. Uh, There's a huge Moorish fort uh, very close by. Uh, There's a known tunnel running uh, from that fort all the way to town. Uh, It ends uh, in the basement uh, of one of the espresso bars uh, there. Um, it's not publicly accessible, but uh, it's been uh, confirmed to us uh, by the experts there uh, that it's actually there. Um, and, and these were Templar lands. Um, the most impressive feature of this, uh, let's call it the Masonic theme park, is the, is the initiation well. Well, there's actually two initiation wells. So what they did, they dug this, um, um, this 90-foot-deep tunnel uh, which is um, uh, 13 feet wide, uh, so it has the dimensions of the uh, of the money pit. Crazy! Uh, it has this uh, circular stairs running down, and it, this was an initiation. So what would happen? They would uh, basically um, uh, um, you would go in there naked, without any any lights. You would go down and descend into the dark, and you would then enter a labyrinth of tunnels. Uh, that would lead you back to the light. And at every junction, you would have to make a decision. Do I go left or right? Left would take you to the light. Right might take you, um, you know, uh, deeper into the dark. And at some stage, you would, uh, there was another, they call this the unfinished well, which is an 
uh, a rougher version uh, of the initiation well that you've seen on the show. And eventually you would find your, if you, if you really follow the light in the pitch, you know, you would find your way back out and you would be reborn initiated. You probably would have been really frightened uh, underground. You'd be alone, wet, cold, right. um, you and yourself, you and your mind, you know, trying to, um, and not to panic and, uh, you know, keep your cool and, uh, and find the exit, which would be a very profound experience, which was reserved for only a few. Quinta de Regalera, um, like the Mona Lisa or Shepherds of Arcadia, was never intended uh, for the public. You know, this was a property um, from a private family who would only invite uh, you know, their, their friends and people with a special purpose uh, to undergo this ritual. Um, but the, the fact is, and this is amazing, the amount of money that was, and the amount of effort that was spent in, in Sintra uh, to build this in, you know, the, the most inaccessible place you can imagine, is, is just, is just mind blowing. It's mind blowing. Um, and, and to, to a fantastic effect. And if you would come back out um, there would be all sorts of structures and fountains and water features. And there's a beautiful, beautiful chapel, uh, which has all sorts of um, Masonic um, um, themes sculpted into its walls, into its stained glass windows. And it's, it's I mean, you can, you can walk around for a month and, and find <laughs> new things uh, every day. The reason, of course, that we were there uh, was uh, because of the... Uh, um, the the parallels uh, with the money pit um, um so that's why you brought you them be- you brought them there because you knew that 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 there was a connection or a parallel uh, a similarity between the money pit yes people have brought have brought up the idea of the money pit being um what they call an enochian chamber so something from uh, the Masonic teachings with nine levels where every time, you know, you reach a new insight or, you know, a new level of consciousness or a new level of humanity. Um, and, uh, I think the well in Sintra is the, is the most gorgeous, you know, yeah. stone representation of the, of that thing. And this property now is publicly accessible. You said it's a tourist site. I mean, it, it turned it. It, it is. It, it, what was it? It, it must have been handed over to the government at some point, or some, what? <laughs> I, I'm not sure, but it's yeah. uh, it's uh, run by the uh, Portuguese equivalent of the National Park Service uh, in America. Because Masons, and, and you know, yeah. current Masons aren't, at least in the United States, aren't really big on letting people walk around their properties and their museums and things like that. It's <laughs> it, you know, it's interesting to see that this one being so um, so elaborate is one that's now publicly yeah. accessible. Yeah, and Montero really made the connection also with the uh, um, the Royal House of Portugal. You see uh, paintings of all the Portuguese kings uh, w- with their uh, Knights of Christ uh, uh, crosses and everything. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's an absolutely amazing place, and I'm really uh, yeah really grateful uh, we went there. Can, is there? This is a question you might not be able to answer, and and I, I'm not sure if I'm asking it right anyway, but. Is there a real? Uh, can you find a connection between in Portugal between what we now call the Freemasons and the Knights of Christ? I mean, 
or is this a situation where the Freemasons developed a couple hundred years later and then, you know, looked back on these organizations as inspiration, really? Because in a lot of situations, that seems to be the most the, the, the best connection I could find between the Freemasons of now of, you know, the 18th century and on to these more Middle Ages era um holy organizations, you know, um, Catholic church related organizations. Is there a better connection one can find between the two or is it sort of the same as the other? The real connection is impossible uh, to find. I think the, uh, what, what is sure is that uh, the end of the 18th, uh, beginning of the 19th century, um, you know, the, the crusades and the, the Templar era came into fashion, came back into fashion um, uh, this is uh, when, for example, uh, the crusade halls were uh, created in, in Versailles uh, and where people um, were falling in love with this romantic ideal of uh, someone giving his life uh, to fight for Christ uh, uh, far away. Um, but I must say, you know, if you if you walk around in Sintra, if you walk around in Portugal, I mean, the the the, the legacy of the Order of Christ is deeply ingrained in in Portuguese uh, society. Right. right. Um, so the whole place, you know, the, the whole scenery in in Sintra is so deliberate, and it feels, you know, it, uh, as I said on the show, it doesn't feel inspired; it feels instructed by uh, uh, by by something, which doesn't mean anything in terms of uh, proof or fact. Right, um, but uh, it, it, uh, what you what you can say uh, uh, for certain is that uh, what you can see in Sintra, and I think uh, you know in in wider Freemasonry, uh, uh, was very much inspired by what the Knights Templar uh, uh, did, and uh, in some of the the Masonic rituals like uh, 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 the York Rite uh, uh, and stuff like that. I mean. It's literally about you know finding the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, it's literally about uh, finding the menorah. Uh, all these parallels uh, are there. So the uh, uh, as a but for for me, it's a line of inspiration. I see no evidence that that one morphed into the other. So the Knights Templar became the Order of Christ. That's a actual. That's an actual physical thing. Right. Um, how that morphed into uh, uh, Freemasonry. Um, no idea, but uh, that wasn't necessarily a straight succession of people with, uh, gotcha. uh, you know, passing on ideas. Um, I, can't, I, I, don't, I, I could do this all day. We can do this all day, and I don't want to keep you too much longer. But I, I can't go without talking about the road because it's sure. ac- yeah. according according to this to the show, the Stone Road really was sort of the inspiration. The Stone Road, and then the little shot. What looked like yeah. a small cannon shot that uh, whose yeah. stones seem to have come from the Azores. Um, now, after your explanation of the Portuguese involvement in Nova Scotia during the Age of Exploration, now the shot doesn't seem all that out of place. I mean, I guess it is sort of. It's, it's a weird thing to find, but it's sort of out of place. I was speaking to Laird Niven a couple of weeks ago. And I'll be I'll tell you a little bit about my thinking. You know, uh, we have a a farmland uh, island here 
They were getting possibly something that needed oxen to carry off the island onto a ship. There's no other way you could have done it back then. There was no causeway. You had to get whatever you were farming onto a boat in order to get it to the mainland. So if the easiest way to get the boat there was to pull it close to the swamp, which makes sense if you look at the way the island might have looked 300 years ago, this this makes sense. So you build a stone road out to a wharf. No problem. Doesn't seem all that unusual. And then Laird Niven said to me, no, they've never seen anything like this in Nova Scotia. This does not exist. Nobody did it this way. There was easier ways to do it than pile up stones. So now my head is completely messed up after convincing myself I was right that this was all, (laughs) you know, for for weeks convincing myself I was right. So what you've seen of the Stone Road, and I know you've been on the island, um, what you've seen of the stone road, what you see of these now, what we're also doing here is we're connecting it not to a Portuguese thing. We're connecting it to a Roman thing. And I'm saying that sort of making that distinction almost politically, right. Rather than, (laughs) rather than uh, culturally, Um, because it is a Roman thing found in other areas of Europe. Um, You've seen them both. What do you think? I would say um, if you look at the, uh, the stone road on Oak Island, it definitely looks European. Um, and that's not because I've been uh, to Portugal and looked at the Roman road there. You know, I already thought that when I first saw it, uh, this how, you know, medieval um, roads look in Europe. And these were developed by the Romans. And then, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, some of the Roman roads are still there while roads we built in the 1970s or, or even 10 years ago, you know, are, are, are no longer fit to drive on. Right. So, you know, these guys did something to the structure which was uh, durable. Um, and that's all you can say about it. Um, so the road on Oak Island looks European. Okay. Um, and we have them all over Europe. We have them like this, uh, you know, in France, uh, uh, in, uh, in Portugal, in Italy. Um, if you walk to Via Appia in, uh, in Rome, it looks exactly the same. Um, so it's the same structure of big stones at the bottom, and then you fill it up with smaller stones, and then there's sand and gravel. And, you know, in the end, you would have a smooth surface uh, that you uh, could walk on. And uh, this is exactly also how the archaeologist uh, explained it to us uh, in Portugal. And, and man, this, this is a very well-preserved Roman road. It's uh, steep. It has an, uh, you know, a, uh, an incline of, I think, uh, 24%. Wow. I measured it with my, uh, with my iPhone, and it goes straight down. So the, the, we were joking that if you would, would, would <laughs> arrive there with a cart and your menorah on top of it, you know, there would be no <laughs> way to, to, uh, <laughs> to retain it. It would, it would you know, drive down and then uh, uh, probably uh, end up in the ocean uh, um, <laughs> Uh, uh, down the hill um, but very very impressive uh, uh, feature um, and and yes uh, the Portuguese uh, uh, use this technology too uh, you can see the same technology around the convent of Christ uh, you know the the medieval road leading up to the uh, um, uh, to the castle uh, is like this too one thing that we uh, didn't see is like the in the, on a Roman road there would always be a line running through the middle. You can see that very clearly uh, if you uh, um, look at the footage from uh, uh, from the show. Um, so there would be the highest point of the road would be in the middle, and then it would uh, go down on both uh, 
on both sides so that it could flow away uh, to the edges of the road. Um, that's hard to distinguish uh, how they did that on Oak Island, but it's, I guess you know that wasn't necessary because it isn't such a long, such a long. Uh, right, it didn't go uh, for miles road. and miles, and drainage probably no, wasn't no. Uh, first thing on their minds. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, um, and but again, you know that that's it looks European. Uh, that's what you can say about it. And I, you know, you, uh, we all also know that the Portuguese from the Middle Ages onwards uh, used this uh, technology. And in fact, there, uh, the archaeologist uh, told us that there's uh, uh, parts in Portugal where some of these roads are still somewhat maintained, you know, by a farm by a farmer who happens to have a bit of road, uh, you know, crossing his land uh, uh, because he can use it for some reason or another. So they repair and they re-repair with the, with the same technology. And this was so successful and so durable that they basically uh, still use this in pretty much the same form, uh, you know, a thousand years on. Um, so, and, and I agree with Laird. It looks distinctly European. As far as I know, I'm not the expert, I'm not an archaeologist, but as far as I know, uh, the First Nation people of um, of uh, Canada did not use... That was a question uh, I had for them, yep. They did not use uh, a stone building. You know, they didn't build stone houses. They didn't use stone as a, uh, as a tool. They used right. wood. Um... So in that sense, you know, I completely agree with uh, with Laird. And then, uh, the, if you then add up, you know, the, uh, the 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 gunshot which could have come from the Azores uh, with the Portuguese presence and the timing and the datings in the swamp, then I think it's uh, it, uh, there's a very good case to make for Portuguese presence on the island, and uh, that definitely triggered the trip to Portugal. Uh, you know, while you know, I came. I happened to came along. You know, with uh, with my parallel uh, research, and then you know, one uh, reinforced the other, and uh, um, all of a sudden, uh, you know, I was um, uh, heading a, an expedition into Portugal. Not what I not what I uh, what I had expected to do in the summer last year. Now, um, just before I let you go, there uh, we. I'm sure there are. Th- I ask this of everyone who's been on the show. I'm sure there are some things that we didn't see um, that you either took them to or we're talking about. We already mentioned a little bit of the the previous research um, that we didn't see, but is there anything in, that happened in Portugal that, you know, that you wish they had aired for us, for those of us interested in this kind of stuff? Um, you know, did, did we leave anything out that you want to, uh, that you'd like to touch on before we uh, wrap up here? Uh no, not really. I've already okay. mentioned the the discovery of a horizontal tombstone with a Templar abacus, a staff, you know, with the uh, with a round Templar cross uh, repurposed in the wall. That that was one of the highlights uh, of the tour uh, for me. Um, and to uh, you know to actually find a a real knight's you know an unknown knight's Templar tombstone in this exact location. Uh, you know, after uh, having been led to it, uh, you know, by by a map and some findings uh, on the island, that was uh, that was quite a moment. And you can see uh, on the photos of us, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we all posed in front of the church, and uh, I have them on my uh, uh, on my Facebook. Uh, uh, you can see the way we look. There was such a a huge feeling of of accomplishment uh, uh, that day. That was that was very special. At the end of the season, 
one of the things that got us all excited was Rick had mentioned that he that the team was now employing, uh, I, I think he called them researchers, people to you know head up the research uh, in areas of Europe. Uh, are you one of those people now? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I hope so, and that's very exciting if that is the case. Um, I guess that's all I have for you. I just want to thank you for doing this. And again, um, your research and the stuff that – this is the exciting stuff. This is the stuff we're into, man. I mean, this is the stuff everybody who listens to this show wants to hear about. And this is just – you know, we're, we're all very excited to hear that uh, it's continuing and uh, there is a lot more to come here because this – that trip, man, that was amazing stuff. I mean, next time, you know – I'll I'll come. <laughs> You're a volunteer. Yeah, well, I'll yeah. volunteer. So, so am I. Yeah. Um, I can, yeah I can imagine. I mean, I I, uh, I this is something. This is one quote I used from my war room. Never in a million years had I expected to find a link to Portugal on a on a French map from the 17th century. Wow. And never in in 10 million years. And I expected you know to be uh, the Oak Island tour guide uh, in Portugal, uh, but it <laughs> happened, and uh, and it was cool. And I'm ever so grateful uh, uh, to Prometheus, uh, to the team, you know, for their trust and uh, and for the you know for the for the friendship and you know the the genuine love that these people apply every day in making this this show. And I you know I I know there's been a lot of complaining about the editing and uh, and about uh, the direction the show is going um but you know there's reasons uh, uh that they do this I've, I've said before there is a difference between oak island the hunt and oak island uh the show but i believe it's coming you know it's coming closer together and it's a very tight-knit team of people uh it's 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 a team more than anything else and uh, uh, you know to to see that play out in front of you and then maybe that was the uh um, the real treasure I found in uh, in Portugal, you know, to to see that up close and uh, um, yeah, it's been it's been a, 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 it's a cliche of the of the year, but it, it's been a, an enormous privilege. I think that you what you just said right there, um, and I just want to r- repeat it because it's it's perfectly said. Is that I think all of us who are viewers of the show and who complain about the narration or the editing or that. We all have to keep in mind exactly what Corian just said there, which is there is a difference between what we're seeing and the people who make the show and the show that's presented and the countless hours of work going in by not only the guys you see, Rick, and this, but also by people like yourself and, and other, you know, other authors and researchers who are all part of this thing. Maybe we don't see all that because of an editing choice, but it doesn't mean it isn't going on, and it doesn't mean that this search isn't in great hands. Because just on your end, my friend, this research is in great hands because <laughs> this has been incredible cool. stuff. Well, thank you so much. Uh, and for for people who are tired of the narrator, you can uh, watch the European <laughs> you can watch the European version. In the Netherlands, we have a different translator on the History <laughs> Channel. Uh, so look for the French or the uh, the English version, and uh, it will give you. Uh, it's the same text, but uh, a different voice. If that helps you, uh, maybe that uh, that's an idea. Thank you very much. You know, we're gonna. I'm gonna be asking you to do this again. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Dave. Take care, man, and uh, on to the next one. Cheers.